Hi, buddy. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've seen them in a few different places. I've seen them in the Cairo Museum. I've seen one in the Sainsbury Centre, the Art Museum in Norwich, Norfolk in the east of England. And I've seen some beautiful examples in the Manchester Museum in the north of England. They are sarcophagi. They're coffins in which Egyptians were... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Buried. But they look very different to the ones that you might be thinking of. Giant, carved stone, idealized portraits, or even the beautiful golden death mask of Tutankhamun. These sarcophagi have extraordinary, realistic paintings of people's faces on wooden panels. They are, I think, the most beautiful, the most lifelike, realistic depictions of the human form that I've ever seen from any centuries BC. And they're a product of Egypt, but not the Egypt of the pharaohs, the Egypt of the Ptolemies, the Greeks and the Romans. By 31 BC, when Egypt became part of the Roman Empire, These so-called mummy portraits were the new trend for burials. The paintings that you see on these wooden panels show a great variety of people. There is light and dark skin, there's curly hair and straight, black, brown and blonde. The ones in the Manchester Natural History Museum are Romans, but they're engaging in the ancient Egyptian practice of mummification, following the ancient Egyptian burial practices. These paintings these mummies demand that you ask questions of them. They give us an extraordinary window into the Greco-Roman era of Egypt, the point at which it sort of stops being ancient Egypt and, well, turns into something else, where the art, the traditions and the cultures are a fusion of three mighty civilizations: Greeks, the Romans and the Egyptians. And these portraits show that Egypt is going through a period of transition, from old to new. That period probably begins with the conquest of Alexander the Great in 332 BC. After Alexander, who really took to ancient Egypt, you get the rule of the Ptolemies, one of Alexander the Great's generals, who seized Egypt and he and his descendants ruled for centuries. Alexandria became a centre of Greek culture and learning. Egypt then became Roman with the death of the famous Cleopatra and the Roman conquest of around 30 BC. And Rome changed the Egyptian economy and its administration and culture. But Romans, like the Greeks before them, seemed to show a degree of respect for Egyptian religion and customs, which must have eased that transition to a new era. In fact, more than just 
respect. It seems that the Romans became Egyptianophiles. They wanted to live and die as the ancient Egyptians had done. And it's from that cultural exchange that we get these incredible so-called Fayum mummy portraits. To find out more about life and death in Egypt under Greek and Roman rule, I went to the Manchester Museum to meet Dr. Campbell Price. He's been on this podcast many times, he's a great friend, and he's curator of their Egypt and Sudan collection, where right now you can see these incredible painted mummies and other extraordinary artifacts that tell the story of Greco-Roman Egypt in their Golden Mummies exhibition, which has proved a smash hit and is running till mid-April 2024. So get there as soon as you can. We've gone through 30 centuries of ancient Egypt this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And we're now at the final years. The last gasp of pharaonic Egypt. It's transitioned into a Roman province. And it's the end of ancient Egyptian civilization as we often define it. It would be a long time and several more conquests before Egypt held its own fate in its hands. Here's Dr. Campbell Price. Enjoy. Describe where we are at the moment, because it feels archetypally museum-y. It is very museum-y, Dan, because we're right in the, the bowels of Manchester Museum. We're on the ground floor. We're in the museum stores. We're surrounded by archaeology, local archaeology and Egyptian archaeology, Egyptian and Sudanese archaeology. So everything you see around you in these boxes, for the most part, is over 2,000 years old. It's it's wonderful. There's brown, red, orange boxes piled high. There's a, a reconstructed Roman shield up there with its famous big boss that they used to whack into people. So that's uh, that's good fun as well. And there's obviously big, huge drawers, filing cabinets for big documents and, and manuscripts as well. It's a wonderful space. But we're here today to talk about ancient Egypt, but it's not the bit of ancient Egypt that people will be thinking of, perhaps, New Kingdoms, Ramesses, Tutankhamun, Pyramids, even Old Kingdom. There's a whole bit, isn't there? Tell me about Ptolemaic Egypt. What is that? Well, in a way, this is the bridge to modernity, because you've got pharaonic times, and when I studied Egyptology at university, Ramesses II died and everything else was decline. But then, how do you get to Cleopatra? So Cleopatra VII is a, a key figure, she dies in 30 BC, and she is the last in a line of kings called Ptolemy, who are successors of Alexander the Great. So he sweeps in in the 4th century BC, and he's a liberator, he's an invader, take your pick. And he is accepted as a living god in Egypt, and then he goes on carrying on battling elsewhere in the world. But he kind of got quite into Egypt while he was there, didn't he? And he liked being a living god. <laughs> he did. Like a lot of non-Egyptian rulers, they liked the kind of trappings of kingship, of being pharaoh. And so, yes, he's accepted as the son of Amun, and he is interested in that, and he goes and probably uses that as an ego boost. But he leaves a friend, the general Ptolemy, in charge. And so Ptolemy kicks off a new dynasty, which lasts 300 years. And that ends in Cleopatra VII, and with the death of Cleopatra VII in the aftermath of the Battle of Actium, Egypt becomes part of the Roman world, so it becomes absorbed into the Roman Empire. So that last three centuries leading up to Cleopatra is a time of... I mean, Egypt was always in contact with other parts of the world. It was always multicultural. But the family of Alexandra is obviously from Macedon, so they're Greek 
they're ethnically Greek. And so the Ptolemies set up a new capital city on the northern coast, looking out to the Mediterranean, called Alexandria, surprise, surprise, named after Alexander. And they try very hard to strike a balance between being Greek and probably speaking Greek to each other and being Egyptian and being the pharaoh and keeping the priests happy. So Cleopatra VII is the last of these Ptolemaic rulers, and she's really the last pharaoh, because after her, Egypt is ruled by Roman emperors. And you mentioned keeping the priests happy. Do you get this kind of hybrid culture? Do they go native, or do they import lots of their Greek ideas and architecture and values? What's the result of this? Based on what survives, because obviously you can only judge what um, survives, you have got absolutely a hybrid culture, a hybrid elite culture, because a lot of people, the farmers in the fields, we don't know what they think or do or believe. Um, but the rich people, the elites, the royals, they are people who see themselves as, I think, a mixture of, yeah, Greek. So Greek is used in documents. So if you're writing an official document, you write it in Greek. If you write a religious document in an Egyptian temple, that has to be in hieroglyphs. So knowledge of hieroglyphs is still current in Ptolemaic Egypt. And Alexandria gets this extraordinary reputation for geography, for engineers, for arts. Is it just that nature of having a kind of dynamic, creative, febrile city full of different cultures rubbing up against each other? What's happening there? Yeah, I think it's dynamic. It's cosmopolitan. People are still crying about the loss of the Library of Alexandria. I've never got over it. Yeah. Well, we should, yeah, but the, the later destruction of the Library of Alexandria is still regarded as one of the greatest losses of cultural and intellectual material of all time. So, yeah, yeah. there must have been something going on there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have people coming from the whole Eastern Mediterranean and further because Egypt was always this kind of in-between point. It's a land bridge between Africa, the continent of Africa, and what we now call the Middle East. And it had this incredibly ancient, hallowed, venerated culture that the Greeks absolutely were drawn to like a magnet. So what was in the Library of Alexandria, goodness knows, there were plenty of documents that we know of referred to in Egypt that could go down back to the time of the pyramids, but which are lost. It's a reminder that what we have of the ancient world is just such a tiny little yeah. sliver, and you can imagine what was there in that library. Oh, it's painful. Missing books of Tastas, for example. Anyway, so the Greeks build this amazing hybrid dynamic culture. How do the Romans deal with Egypt and Egyptianness? They have a kind of a mixed attitude. On one hand, like the Greeks, they're very reverential. But then, you know, when someone like Octavian, who becomes the Emperor Augustus, shows up in Egypt, he's shown the, the entombed body of Alexander, and the Egyptian priests offer to show him the Apis bull, the sacred Apis bullus incarnation of an Egyptian god. And Augustus says, well, I'm accustomed to worshipping gods, not cattle. So on one hand, the Romans are respectful. They show themselves, the emperors, as Egyptian pharaohs on Egyptian temple walls. But culturally, they don't spend much time there because they're ruling the empire. People like Hadrian are Egyptophiles. When his boyfriend, friend, lover, Antinous drowns, Hadrian declares he's an Egyptian god, and he's the last Egyptian god. And Hadrian and others ship lots of obelisks to Rome. So there are more standing obelisks in Rome today than there are in Egypt. 
and the, uh, the beautiful columns on the front of the Pantheon are from a, a quarry in Egypt, which I once went to. It's a very exciting trip across the desert. Yes. Um, so let's just quickly deal with the Roman, because actually the, Egypt plays a key part in this, in the end of the Roman Republic and the birth of empire. You mentioned Augustus Octavian was in Egypt. Cleopatra, you've mentioned, yeah. people know her. Mark Antony, favourite of Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. He's given that sort of half of the empire, isn't he? Given the East in an uneasy agreement with Octavian. They all fall out. He, does he get too into being Egyptian, do you think? Is that, does he sort of betray his Roman roots? And that's part of the friction between him and Octavian. Yes, because I think he gets associated with Cleopatra. And Cleopatra is seen by the Romans as a very scary, threatening Eastern woman. And that is the attitude that has influenced everyone up to Shakespeare, who's drawing on classical sources. Whereas sources in Arabic emphasise that she was a scholar a politician, a diplomat, not what Western sources emphasise. So Octavian invades Egypt and Cleopatra and Antony famously flee and then they fight the Battle of Actium. They lose the naval battle, which is the last of these Roman civil war battles. Octavian, now Augustus, consolidates the whole of, of the Mediterranean basin, the whole of the Roman Empire, and that's that. Does life change with its incorporation into the Roman Empire? Is it a different feel to how it was when it was a Ptolemaic Greek kingdom? I think like anything in history, you know, what makes a new chapter in our history books when you're experiencing it, it's not, you know, new pottery, new language. If you're paying taxes, maybe the kind of regulations are changing, but day-to-day life doesn't change very much. Egyptian religion persists slowly absorbing as it always had done outside deities. So there are Greek and Roman gods who are absorbed into the Egyptian pantheon. And then Egyptian deities like Isis, the goddess Isis, was worshipped not far probably from where we're sat now in Manchester, in Roman Manchester. So the cult of Roman and Greek deities is very much accepted as part of Egyptian religion. And then certain Egyptian deities become popular in the Roman world. And certainly in Egypt, when people die, that is a really interesting hybridity where there's a definite favouring of pharaonic gods and symbols and images over classical ones. And are the Romans insisting that everyone speaks Latin? No, um, I don't think Latin has much hold in Egypt. For certain official contemporary inscriptions, secular inscriptions, you'd use Latin. The documentary language is Greek still, so that's being um, inherited from the Ptolemies. And anything... In a pharaonic context, so a temple or a tomb would still be written in hieroglyphs. Well, on that note, should we go and look at this amazing gallery? And Let's have- do that, Dan. Let's do that. You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit. There's more to come. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Campbell, it's a great exhibition, isn't it? It's dark <laughs> with wonderful lighting, and you can already see the beautiful colours of objects here. Fantastic. Describe what we're all seeing here now. So this is the exhibition Golden Mummies of Egypt. It was a pleasure to curate because, as you said, things are much better lit in a special exhibition. They're never usually lit so well in a permanent gallery. So this is 108 objects from Greco-Roman Egypt, mostly from the excavations of Flinders Petrie at the site of Hawara. Petrie was a well, famous Egyptologist. Howard Carter would have he would have been a senior figure at the time and he lived at the end of the Victorian period, Edwardian sort of period as well. So Petrie famously said of Carter who trained with him, oh I can't work him up as an archaeologist. And then Carter became the most famous archaeologist ever. Um, so the story is basically about expectations of the afterlife in the Greco-Roman period. So 300 BC, right the way through to maybe 200 AD. And I love the way it says it up on the wall there, Egypt and the Greco-Roman period. I mean, that's three of the great cultures of the ancient East Mediterranean, ancient Near East. And yet we're talking about them all sort of laid on top of each other here. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, what you're going to see is a lot of hybrid ideas about divinity and about what happens when you die and there's always space for the other two they seem to coexist quite happily so that's why we talk about a multicultural uh, society which in human terms is well, i don't know if it's unlikely but more recently in our history we tend to think of um slightly more dogmatic religious yes. practices don't we so it's odd that these can knock along together alongside each other without being threatened by each other without being threatened but you'll see as we go around there are different contexts where it's more appropriate to emphasize one culture maybe over the other so the material we're next to now these terracotta figurines are from houses so these are from domestic contexts and you'll notice there is more of a classical bent to these so there are goddesses influenced by classical tradition of, uh, you know, Aphrodite, Demeter, the god Harpocrates, who is shown as a kind of cherubic child with a Roman toga on, but on top of his head, he's wearing an Egyptian crown. So that's typical of Horus the child, but in classical contexts, he's the kind of innocent child who defends you from negative forces. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you're looking at Egyptian figures, but sculpted in the classical Greek tradition. Yes. I mean, this is my favourite in front of us. This is the god Bess. So in pharaonic times, you know, Tutankhamun's tomb has images of Bess, and he's running at you with his tongue out and feathers in his hair and knives in his hands. So he's defending you from negative forces. Come the Ptolemaic period, 
the most threatening thing they can think of is a Ptolemaic Macedonian soldier. So that's why he's wearing Macedonian armor with a quite a distinctive shield and a sword that you wouldn't get in pharaonic times. So he is the idea of negative forces turned against themselves. Great, but I thought the Ptolemies were Macedonian. They were, yeah. So they're using the image of the external threat. This was found in Egypt, of course, in an Egyptian household. Fascinating. All right, let's keep going. We have eight mummified people in the space, and this gentleman is one of them, the first we're going to encounter. Quite unusually for these Roman period, probably second century mummified bodies, his name is given in Greek, so you see on his chest. So his name is Artemidorus. He is this encapsulation of a multicultural expectation for death. So his name is in Greek. He's shown as a high-class Roman citizen. You, we should say he's shown, because people may be familiar with this, that some of the most amazing art, I think, from the whole of the ancient world, they're painted portraits where the head of the mummy would be on the yes. outside of the casket, and painted realistically. I mean, that's a portrait that we would recognise as painted today. Yes, we're, we're going to see more of these around the corner because Manchester is one of the, the best collections of these outside Cairo. The question of what they represent and how they represented it, I'll come back to. Here, sufficiently that's giving you a Roman identity. So he's got the laurel leaves you see picked out in gold. He's got a um, toga by the looks of it. Yeah, he's got a Roman-style toga, and he's shown as an elite uh, Roman man. But then the rest of the cover is details of pharaonic gods. You've got the god Osiris there with his tall crown, uh, the falcon god Horus, the goddess Isis, perhaps, with her wings outstretched, the god Anubis, the jackal god. All of these are being invoked to give him what I would say is the punchline of the exhibition, which is divinity after death. So the people are becoming gods, not just mingling with gods. So you think this is a democratisation of becoming a god? They're all becoming gods now, are they? Oh, I don't know if it's democratisation as such. This guy's pretty well off still. But interestingly, in cases where um, these Roman period mummies, so second century AD mummies have been analysed, that red pigment has been shown to be from the Rio Tinto in Spain. So that was one aspect of imperial culture that you could import things which in pharaonic times you would not have had access to. And beneath that portrait, stretching down the length of the body, the length of this, this plaster cover in, in the shape of a mummy, mm -hmm. it's red and there are depictions in gold of ancient Egyptian deities. Mm -hmm. uh, where are we going now? So we're going to go around and look at a few more faces. So these are the kind of trappings that you would have in the Ptolemaic period, into the Roman period as well. And often it's quite difficult to date them for sure because they don't have king's names on. Uh, you can't really do it precisely. But this is part of this huge industry, albeit for elite people, of funerary arts. And that's what Petrie and other archaeologists were finding uh, at sites like Hawara. There were lots, I mean, there were thousands of bodies. Maybe only two or three percent of them had nice decoration. So you must have been fairly well off to be mummified because it's a very labour-intensive, material-rich process. But to have painted, cartonized this material that's um, like paper mache, you know, you had to be fairly well off to commission the skills to do these things. So you think these people are buying themselves not just a place in the afterlife, but in the top tier of the afterlife? Oh, absolutely. And we have this idea fairly consistently throughout pharaonic times that 
you are going to not just be in the company of the gods, but you are going to be a god yourself. So a lot of visitors are coming in here and seeing lots of faces. It's an exhibition about faces. And they say, oh, that looks like Uncle Joe, or that looks like the lady I saw on the street. None of these look like living people. None of them represent people as we would represent them in a Western representational, mimetic style, a way of showing someone as they actually are. They are meant to be stylized, they're meant to be perfect like gods, and if you can afford it, as you'll see around the corner, you would use lots of gold. And there's a much more liberal use of gold in the Greco-Roman period than in earlier pharaonic times. So, so you say they're not meant to look like people, they're not meant to look like the individuals themselves. They do, however, they are incredibly real. Mimetic is a new word that I've learned from you that I enjoy very much. <laughs> okay. So they are very mimetic. So this is almost a, I hate doing this, mm -hmm. it's a kind of Instagram filtery, you know, quick cleanse on the portrait. Yes, I think that you can look at it that way. So here, the lady whose, whose mask we're looking at in this case, in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, there's a case that has a dozen exactly the same masks. Okay. People didn't look exactly the same. There weren't 12 people walking around looking exactly the same. This was a product of the funerary industry, sure, but gods, and this is something we've tried to emphasize in this exhibition, don't have things that you might improve with a, an Instagram filter. They don't have gammy legs, they don't have arthritis, they don't have tumours. The sort of thing that biomedical interpretation tends to foreground. So that's why we don't put CT scans or x-rays in, because gods are without human frailties and the point of being mummified is to be perfect and not to dwell on ailments. And all of these five in front of us now if they were real people, they'd be very beautiful, they'd be perfect. Yes, yes, symmetrical and algorithmic study of, you know, images has shown how, um, yeah, mathematically perfect they are. So we've just come around the corner now, and I'm afraid we have got golden mummies here, folks. We've got actual golden mummies. But again, looking at this, it is this really strange hybrid of a kind of Egyptian mummy style that we're all so familiar with. There are strong Greek and, and, and Roman influences here, aren't there? Yeah, so what you're seeing is the mummified body of a lady called Isaius, daughter of Demetrios. So her name is given in Greek at the top of the mask. But then, yes, yeah, she's shown as a, an elite Roman lady. She, again, probably dates to the late 1st, maybe early 2nd century AD. She's got this kind of Liz Taylor-style jewellery on uh, from the 1960s Cleopatra film. Probably the only thing that that film actually got right, got accurate in terms of the costuming. But you can see the rest. So the upper part is made of plaster and is covered in gold, gold leaf. But then the rest of the body is covered in a shroud. And this is one of the best preserved shrouds from this period. It's quite colourful. You can see there are pharaonic gods. There are jackal gods. There's um, the goddess Isis again. And there's a wonderful fiction there because there's a, a scene of the jackal god Anubis tending the mummy on a bed, a lion-headed bed, just like the ones found in Tutankhamun's tomb. Underneath, there are four jars, the canopic jars. That is a complete fiction. There were no canopic jars in the Roman period. So it's what is appropriate to show in this multicultural mashup that will get you into the afterlife and turn you into a god. And, we, and a canopic jar is where your sort of entrails go, right? Your, yeah. your key organs. Yes. In the pharaonic period, that's where the some of the internal organs are removed and stored. But the Romans decided to yeah. cut that bit out. <laughs> Literally, yes. So where the CT scans have been done, you can see, for the most part, they still have their organs intact. 
And why do we think that is? How did the process of making mummies change then this, through these centuries? I mean, the process of mummification had constantly been in flux and constantly been changing depending on the time period and the region in Egypt you were in. And that continues into Roman times. It's not just that in Roman times, the practice declined. That's quite common still in Egyptology. You talk about the, the decline of mummification standards. These people still believed they were doing a good job. They were successfully, it was hoped, transforming uh, the body of a dead person into the image of a god. And so that's why I talk more in the exhibition about this is not mummification in the service of preservation. It's mummification to transform the degradable, decomposable body into something eternal and divine. Let's turn around here. We've got some sound effects here. We've got another beautiful golden one here. Same thing, a golden head, shoulders and upper body, and then the rest of the body wrapped in a shroud. Yes. Uh, so what you're, you're seeing, all of these uh, mummies and masks are from the site of Hawara, where Petrie worked for three seasons. So what you're seeing is material that was excavated by Egyptian workers who are largely nameless in the record, but we know, of course, uh, Petrie. Um, and he and his team uncovered these. And so can you see the eyes of this lady are inlaid? And if you look very closely, you can see she's got bronze eyelashes. So some experimental archaeology has been done to recreate the conditions of viewing in the second century AD. So not like where we are now in a museum with electric light, but if you hold a candle or a kind of puttering flame up, her eyes look like they're alive. So that's emphasizing this sense of divinity and otherworldliness, which is important for these Roman mummies because we've got good evidence that their feet are often damaged because they've been stood up. So they were encountered for some time, so years after their deaths, in a kind of chapel situation where the family would go and visit them and only later would they be gathered together and buried. So you would go and visit your relatives in this mummified form. That is astonishing. I guess that speaks to the, the loss, the desire to maintain a relationship somehow with those, with those departed. I guess, yes. So if you follow this through to its well, to an ancient Egyptian logical conclusion, we've got lots of texts that talk about the gods having bones of iron and flesh of gold. So they have skin that is untarnishable, won't rust, perfect for an immortal being. If you can afford it, you use gold to emphasize that you've made that transition into the divine state that you're going to live forever. In this perfect state, because remember, these are mold-made masks. They're not a death mask modelled on the features of a, an individual. So remember that these mummified bodies we're seeing, 1st, 2nd century AD, are contemporary with the masks and the portraits next door. Okay, now here we are. We've just come around the corner. We've got another mummy here with what I thought was a very realistic portrait, but you're telling me is a sort of idealised representation of a person, but super realistic. Yes. I mean, these are things which visitors to the exhibition, some of them find shocking because this suddenly can crashes in with a Western sense of art and the human image because these faces have got the flash of light in the eyes. They look like people you would see in the street. And so I'm deeply sceptical myself that they represent the people on whose bodies they now rest. In fact, there's even a school of thought that 
they were painted in Italy and shipped into Egypt. So they're not being done, as Flinders Petrie, the archaeologist, thought, from a sitting. You know, you're not sitting in your prime because you want a portrait and hanging it on your wall, as he thought. There are lots of portraits of children. So why would they be showing children in their prime if they hadn't yet achieved it? We are just seduced by these faces because, you know, it's a human reaction. You see a human face and you're attracted to it. But we kid ourselves on often that these are, you know, Polaroids. They're not photographs. They're filtered through a whole series of layers of decorum, what is appropriate to show. And for the most part, they look like the Roman emperor. That's how you date them. Is by a hairstyle. Is it the second style of Commodus or the third style of Hadrian? Because remember, the Roman emperor was a god, was a living god. And so this is just a different way of visualizing divinity. You can choose a gold mask or you can choose one of these panel portraits. The interesting thing to me is someone has to make a choice. The dead don't bury themselves. The family must choose, oh, Grandpa Artemidorus, he'll have a mask. Or Grandpa, someone else, gets a portrait. And just to emphasise again, these portraits look almost contemporary. I mean, they they are nearly 2,000 years old. And why is that? Is that because they've been in underground? They've been in these incredibly dry conditions? Why do these look more human than something painted on a wall in Pompeii or pottery or any other image that we have from that period. I think you're right that the style, the concept of depicting a person like this comes from Rome. So it comes from those Pompeian images. This is not necessarily indigenous to pharaonic Egypt, but they're being used as masks. And the problem is, of course, in English, you talk about a mask as something that's got through seeing your face. These are called portraits. They're meant to reveal your face. These are the same object. They're giving you a divine face. And even though we like to imagine the people looked like this, I don't think they did. Would these have been hanging on the walls of Roman houses? Petrie thought that they had a purpose during the life of an individual. I'm suspicious of that. I think they're posthumous. They're painted on very thin lime wood, Uh, Lime trees are not indigenous to Egypt. So even the material, at least, is imported. They're painted quickly using an encaustic technique. So they're pigment mixed with hot wax. So technically, they are incredibly accomplished to produce images like this very fast. You know, (laughs) it's impressive. But they've survived because they were buried in sand and left alone. Just not in tombs, not in catacombs, not in vaults under the ground. Covered in a sheet a Hessian sack from Petrie's accounts when he excavates Hawara, and they're left alone for almost 2,000 years, and the, the hot Egyptian desert sand has preserved them. Because they are flimsy. So if these were being done on Roman street corners for tourists, they wouldn't have lasted two seconds, right? It's yeah. just something so special about where they were preserved and how they were buried under that sand. And when Petrie found them, they weren't arranged as they are here, as if in an art gallery, and of course that conditions how people see them and uh, interpret them. They were all attached to bodies. And Petrie makes no bones about the fact that he throws away the body often and keeps the skull and keeps the portrait if it survives because he anticipates something that we would call facial reconstruction. But then Petrie had ideas about race and about eugenics. He was an active eugenicist. So there's a sinister subtext there. They're obviously displayed differently now, but how long have they been in the collection? They've been here since they were excavated in the 1880s. So... 130 odd years. Have they always been as 
popular and engaging as they are now, people just are hypnotised by them. I think as soon as they came out of the ground, the archaeologist Flinders Petrie was absolutely wrapped by them. He put them on temporary display in London um, at the Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly in 1888. And there's good circumstantial evidence that that show was seen by Oscar Wilde. So, yeah, picture of Dorian Gray is absolutely based on one of these handsome young chaps in the portraits. Wow. And actually, he was more right than he knew because these are immortal. Well, that's the thing. You know, they have the wizened, mummified body that's... 2,000 years old, they are often still wrapped up. But the portraits never aged a day since 200 AD. So that's something to dwell upon. Thank you so much for showing me around this exhibition. Get yourself down to Manchester Museum, folks. I really hope you've enjoyed this series on ancient Egypt. Go ahead and hit follow in your podcast app. Get more series and episodes like this automatically onto your phone. And if you want even more Egypt, we have a bonus episode out tomorrow for our subscribers on Nefertiti, the most beautiful and perhaps the most powerful of Egyptian queens. See the link in the show notes to sign up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Snow at checkout. <laughs>